Well, we have reached number 10 of the Ten Commandments. And uh, if you look up here on the banners, you see that, that we've been doing this series called Ten. And uh, today we're going to talk about You Shall Not Covet, number 10. When I think of this uh, commandment, I, I was thinking this week that one of the earliest memories that I have of my childhood and my teen years is of my parents on more than one occasion saying something like this to me. Jeff, you, you never seem happy. No matter what you get, no matter what happens, you may be happy for just a little while and then it all seems to fade. You seem really dissatisfied, discontent. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't like when they said that to me because I knew I already sensed that but now I became even more self-conscious as though I would try and, you know, make that less that way. And the harder I tried, it just didn't seem to make any difference. And um, I've told you before that one of the other ways I saw this show up is that when I would look at other kids' toys, when I would look at other kids' toys, uh, they, sometimes I just found myself saying, I want their toy. Not just another one like it, I actually would like theirs. And I just saw things like that in myself. Now, again, just an observation. When I became a parent, I was, uh, you know, our children were small. I got introduced to McDonald's. You guys ever been there? <laughs> and uh, they have this thing at McDonald's called Happy Meals. You ever seen these? They're just a bag, well, colorful bag, with food in it. But what's the secret? The toy. It's the toy. And I remember uh, the kids, they would just get so excited, Dad, because they knew the latest movie or the latest big thing. And so they would, get, they would get this, and they would open the toy, and they'd be real excited at first. And like sometimes less than 10 minutes, the toy was like scrapped. They liked it at first. And I remember thinking to myself, that's a piece of junk. But they, you know, it was really attractive. So, so then we'd go back to McDonald's, and I, I would hope they would remember their last experience. But they would go, Dad! I need a Happy Meal. So I'd think, okay, well, why, what's different about, it's the toy. It's a different toy. Okay, same thing. Now here's what I thought. Well, it's just kids that struggle with this, right? No, as I got older, I realized they just change the toy. That's all we do. We just make bigger toys. We just say, well, maybe, maybe this time it'll be different. And so this whole thing, and you know, friends, one of the reasons why we need to study number 10 today Tomorrow, it's a month from Christmas. Anybody notice that Christmas is just a breeding ground for coveting? Anybody, know, anybody see that? I mean, you know, wow! And the toys that are flying around. We live in a country that has more opportunities than any other nation in the world. Just ask the researchers who just shared. And yet, why is it? And I, the other night I was in Target, and I, I just thought, I'm just going to watch people. And I thought to myself, if someone decided to do that with me, maybe I'd walk around grumpy too. But I remember I was just thinking, that if you watch, there's not many people that are walking through the day like this. And I'm not talking about fake stuff. I'm just talking, it's like this. Everybody looks, you know, there's just a lot of that. So I was just thinking, what is the deal? How does number 10 relate to all this? So I, I know that, that we need this, but here's the other reason why I want to study number 10 with you today. What I learned this week is that it actually it was this commandment 
that changed the Apostle Paul's life, who wrote half the New Testament. He says it was number 10 that got me. So I want to learn more about that with you today. So if you're following along in the notes, notice this, that number 10 is different from the other nine commandments in a certain way. Number 10 deals with our inner thoughts, if you're following along, not our outer behavior. Number 10 deals more with our inner thoughts, not our outer behavior. So in other words, uh, it has to do with our desires, the things that we think about, the things that we want, whereas the other nine commandments, by and large, although they have some of that, it's, it's more about the actions. For instance, you shall not steal is an action. When you actually do that, it's an action. So some of them say, isn't number eight and number 10 the same? No. Number 10 says that it's wrong to think about taking that. Number eight says don't take it. One's a thought, one's a desire, the other. And so in a way, number 10 crowns all the Ten Commandments, and in a way, it ratchets in things up. And uh, just to, to realize that when you peel it all back, coveting is all about the way we think. It's all about the way we want and, and think and process. So we're going to look at this today, and here's my whole goal. I want to talk about what's coveting and why is it wrong. Then I want to look at something that Paul says he learned from number 10 that changed his life. Then I want to talk about the cure for coveting. I remember that when I was a teenager, I thought, man, the more I try and fix this, it's not going away. So like, is there a cure? Is there any hope? When I feel this, like, this foreboding dissatisfaction, this discontent, this unhappiness. Because what I noticed is when I was like that, I wasn't just miserable. It was hard for people around me to be anything but miserable. It just brings everything down. It's coveting. So let's learn what that is. And here's what I want to ask you to do. Would you mind turning to Philippians 4? Philippians 4. And it's uh, near, like, the last 30 or 40 pages of your Bible, if you're turning back there to the back. And if you don't have a Bible, we say this every Sunday, there's ones in the rack, seat rack in front of you. It should say NIV. It's black. You can pull it out. And it's on page 820. And uh, so if, you, if you're looking there, um, as you're turning, we're going to come to this. This is where we hope to end up today. So what's coveting and why is it wrong? Let's learn what Paul learned, and then let's talk about the cure for coveting. So as you're doing that, are you able to read Exodus 20, verse 17 out loud with me there in that first gray box? Are you able to do that? Let's read it. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So let's talk about what this means. But first, let me just pray. Lord, I ask that you will help us understand coveting, not so that it will wreck our lives, but so that we can discover the freedom that your boundary lines are a gift and that honoring them does lead to a different kind of freedom in our life. And I pray that you would help set us free from coveting and lead us to the cure for it. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so what's coveting? First of all, I want to tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to admire, appreciate, or enjoy something if you're following along. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to admire, appreciate, or enjoy something. Sometimes when people hear, do not covet, they hear God saying, do not have any desires. Do not have any ambition. I hate that. He's not saying that. He's not saying that at all. In fact, God 
wants, he's given us everything for our enjoyment, the Bible says. He wants us to know the fullness of life. He wants us to appreciate things. He wants us to admire and notice things. That's a rich way to live. So in itself, desires are not wrong. The question is, what kind of desires are they? And what he's talking about in coveting is unholy desires. Or he's talking about desiring what God forbids. What God says will not make your life fuller, even though it, it claims to. So it's an unholy desire, okay? And if you're following along, it's an insatiable desire to wrongfully acquire. An insatiable, it means never satisfied. Insatiable desire to wrongfully acquire. So out to the right, I've listed Joshua 6 and 7, talks about a man named Achan, A-C-A-H-N, A-C-H-A-N. And uh, he was just aching to have something that God said you're not supposed to take. Okay? And in that passage, even though God had made it clear, look, when you take the city of Jericho, you're not to take any of the plunder. Other times, I'll permit you to do that. This time, everything is devoted to me. But Achan, it says in Joshua 7, when he saw this robe from Babylonia, when he saw this silver, when he saw this bar of gold, he coveted them in his heart, and he took them, and he hid them in his tent. So that then when Israel went to fight the next battle... They absolutely were defeated. And they said, oh, man, God's not with us. And he says, what are you talking about? There's sin in the camp. Somebody's been coveting, and you're working against yourself when you do that. And so Achan admitted it. It's true. And God judged him. Now, here's what I want you to understand, is that kind of desire to acquire is, is, is trying to do it in your way. We talk about this in stealing, uh, that there are acceptable and unacceptable ways to acquire things. We saw that God's not against people having property. God's not against people having possessions, although some people have tried to say that's what the Bible says. It doesn't. But he does say that there's an acceptable and an unacceptable way to go about that. We talked about examples of that. But here, this desire, it's an unholy desire, an insatiable desire to acquire the wrong, wrongfully. So coveting, let's talk about that definition if you're following along in the notes. Coveting is wanting to grab what belongs to my neighbor. Covet is longing, craving, wanting to grab what belongs to my neighbor. Some people have said, is another word for it to lust after something. To look at something with a lustful intent. To say, I have to have that. Yes. It's not wrong. If you look at something and you say, boy, that'd be nice to have that. That's not coveting. But coveting is saying, oh, that not only be nice to have that, I will have that. I have to have that. How can I get that? And now you become obsessed about getting it. That's coveting. And so when uh, it comes from two words that mean to have more. But not only to have more, but to have more and more in the ugliest kind of way. So you and I can covet in a general way. We can also covet in a very specific way that God's also talking about here is, I do not want you to covet your neighbor's things. If you're following along, notice he says, I don't want you to covet their possessions, their people, or anything that's theirs. Some of you may read Exodus 20, 17, and you realize he's writing this to a people in an agricultural time. So when we see ox and donkey, we go, oh, great. But you may want to put, you know, in there, Honda or Mercedes, okay? When you see servants, you may want to say employees or different family members, things like that. The point is, is it covers it all when it says anything that belongs to your neighbor, not their house, not their spouse or anything else that belongs to neighbors. So he's basically putting a boundary. He's saying, I not only want you not to take it, I don't want you to want it. Because that 
will never bless you or them like you think it will. So if you're looking up here at the screen, look at Luke 12, 15. Jesus said this one day to a crowd. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. New International Version says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. I once heard a pastor say in all his years of counseling, he'd never once had someone call him and say, I really need to talk to you because I'm struggling with coveting. You know why? Because most of us, we, we don't want to tell other people we're coveters. We don't want, most of us, it's very hard for us to think of ourselves as greedy people. But this kind of thing is, is a concern to God, and he says it's a form of greed where it doesn't, you're never satisfied. It's always more, if only a little more. Like Rockefeller was once asked, how much do you need, how much money do you need to be happy? He said, just a little more. That's the mindset we often think about. And Jesus says, the world, the lie that you're going to have in the world's value system is that you keep score, you measure, you measure your success by how many possessions you have, how much you can acquire, how much you can obtain. And the more you can do it, you're a winner. Jesus says, don't be fooled by that. Be on your guard against that kind of spirit that says, I will do it by hook or by crook. says, man, be careful. It makes you ugly. makes you really ugly. So as we're talking about this, listen to what Kent Hughes says as a way of clarifying. He says, here we must be quick to add what the commandment does not say, because it does not forbid desiring to have a wife or a husband or a home. It forbids desiring Mrs. or Mr. Jones or their cars, their furniture, their clothing, their landscaping, their ski boat, their appliances, their lawnmower, even their style. It also forbids jealousy because they have these things. It it forbids poor me bitterness and an attitude of ungratefulness toward God. If you haven't yet noticed, he says, the 10th commandment differs from the preceding commandments because instead of forbidding an action, it forbids a state of mind. The 10th commandment goes right to where no other human being can see. You may have a conventional, congenial face and wear a conventional haircut. You may not have a single telltale extravagance in your life. You may be an elder in your church and yet be seething with angry covetousness. No one would come even close to dreaming that you are covetous. It is an easily camouflaged interior sin. And you and I can even covet other people's spiritual standing with God, spiritual abilities, spiritual gifts. I've shared before how there was a certain well-known pastor that I found myself so envious every time I compared myself to his ability to preach that I actually didn't even enjoy preaching anymore because it just ruined everything. And that kind of envy, that kind of spirit does not help at all. But when it begins to be allowed, when God's boundary line becomes ignored by you or by me, it starts to absolutely infect a group of people, a family, a community, a church, a group of people. And so why is it wrong? Let me just talk to you about that a little bit. First, coveting violates love, if you're following along. Coveting violates love. Look up here, if you would, at Romans 13, 9. Yeah, we saw this a couple weeks ago. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, that's what, number seven, right, friends? You shall not murder, number six. You shall not steal, number eight. And whatever other command there may be, including last week what Steve talked about, number nine, you shall not bear false witness, are all summed up in this one command. In other words, here's how they're all related. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, feel the weight of their worth. 
in my eyes. Treat them the way you would as a loving person would. So when we break these commandments, we're not just breaking rules. We're breaking relationships. We are hurting people. For instance, I know of a guy that once told me, he said, you know, I played basketball. And I was like second string. So when I would sit on the bench, he says, I hate to admit this, but he says, I secretly wish that that guy would get hurt or fall out quickly. In other words, I was hoping he'd play bad. Or I was hoping that something would actually happen to him so that I would get his position. Years ago, I, I knew a pastor that said that in the old days when he used to, uh, people had wakes in their homes so the casket would actually sit in a person's living room or parlor. He walked into the house one day just before the, the visitation and all of a sudden flying across the room was this bone china that smashed against the wall and pieces of it fell into the open casket. And it was two sisters whose mother had died who were arguing. And the one sister was mad because in the will, the plates were supposed to go, the, all the, you know, the bone china was supposed to go to this one sister, and the other sister had wanted it even when her mother was alive. So she threw this plate and said, if, you, if I can't have it, you're not going to have it either. And just broke it. And he remembered thinking to myself, right in their mother's casket was the evidence of what coveting does. It's ugly. Some of us go, well, I'd never do that. Friends, it's more secret than that, and that's where it's so subtle. So, as we think about that, it not only violates love, but look what else it does. It refuses to trust God. When I covet, when I begin to actually maneuver and think like that, what I'm doing is saying, God, I know you're kind of slow on the draw right now, and I really don't think you're doing a good job of taking care of me, so I'll help you out. In fact, I know that you want me. God helps those who help themselves, right? Isn't that in the Bible? No, that's Ben Franklin. But a lot of people think that, that's, that's, that God says that. And God does want us to work with him, but it's not to do it for him. And when you and I begin to do that, we not only violate love, but we refuse to trust God. The passage I list out to the right is a passage where David sinned with Bathsheba. And God sends the prophet Nathan to him. And he says, David... I took you from being a shepherd boy and I gave you so many things, so many gifts. I blessed your life. You know it. And as if those had not been enough, I would have given you even more. But you had to go and grab it for yourself. And he says, that kind of coveting spirit is wrecking your life. And not only wrecking your life, but you wreck Uriah's life, who was Bathsheba's husband. And you see what happens? Number 10 led to number 7, committing adultery which was number eight, stealing another man's wife, which dishonored all of their parents. And then on top of it, it led to the murder that David arranged for Uriah. And in one fell swoop, now he also bore false witness against his neighbor. All six of those commandments. If you turn your notes over, you'll see what I've been talking about. We see that the first four teach us how we're to relate properly to God. The last six teach us how we're to relate to others. And so in one fell swoop, because of the 10th commandment, David, David disobeying God on that when he knew better, that all happened. Now let me just show you something that happens. How does coveting work? Okay, like when you walk out of this building today and you're miles from a church building, how might coveting look in you or me? Well, here's just an idea for you. Usually, as we saw with Achan, when he said, I saw that robe, I saw that silver, 
I saw that gold, or like with Eve, she saw the fruit, and when it was pleasing to the eye, she thought, God must not have been telling me the whole truth. He's holding out on me. I believe the serpent instead. When you see something like that, what you do next in your mind is important. Because all of us have things go through our mind, and there's nothing wrong with those thoughts initially coming into our mind. But if when they first come into our mind, the first thing we do is we admire what we see, there's nothing wrong with that. David, when he saw Bathsheba, that in itself was not coveting. The problem is, is when he took a second look. The problem was not the first look. We live in a world where we are going to be assaulted and presented with all kinds of things. Friends, that is not coveting when that first happens. But if we feed on that, if we build a nest for that thought in our head, then at that point we've moved to a different place. So admire is one thing, but if, when we begin to think about that and say, I not only want that, but then we begin to obsessively dream and scheme. And you know what? It may, it may all be very quiet and very rationalized. Go, you know what? I think I would like that, and I'll just think about that more. And then it begins to do this dream and scheme thing. Then here's what he says happens. It's only a short step until you become a grabber. And when you and I become a grabber, do you remember the, the Ten Commandments, the signs, the hand signs that we learned? Remember this? Take our five fingers like this, and the hand sign for number 10 is, you shall not covet. So the idea can be is grabbing or trying, to, I want this. And he says, no, man, you do that, it's going to be trouble. But if instead, when you see something, you go, that's nice. I don't have to have that to have a full life. I don't have to have that person to have a full life because God said that I'm not supposed to or because he's told me that that kind of desire is twisted, it's not going to love or trust him, then we can actually move to a different place which instead say, how can I love that person instead of want their stuff? Complete different thing. And so here's the last thing I want you to see in this section is this, is that God holds us responsible for our desires and the way we handle them. God holds us responsible for our desires. Back to when I was a kid. I remember that one of the thoughts that really I kept ruminating on was this. I can't help this. I can't help it that I'm unhappy. It's just the way I am. I can't help it that I want that friend's toy. I just know I do. I want it. And surely there's nothing wrong with that. It's not my fault. And I found myself sometimes also feeling sorry that I was unhappy. So it was just this big cycle. And I talked about this with you a few weeks ago, that instead of taking responsibility, sometimes what we do instead is we, we fall into self-pity or we actually wallow in self-pity. And God says, no, no, no. If you decide to pick that route, you not only are going to avoid responsibility, but you're never going to get better that way. So he says this in the scriptures, that he will hold us accountable for our covetousness. That means that if you and I are coveting, it's actually a form of idolatry. It's replacing God with something that we think will fill our lives better or at least along with God. Idolatry is not necessarily worshiping everything but God. Sometimes it's saying, God, I want you, but I also want this, even though you forbid it. God, I want you, but you know what? You're okay, but you didn't completely fill me up, so I want this. And that kind of thing, he says, man, it's trouble. So he holds us responsible for our desires and how we steward them. So when these kinds of thoughts start coming in your mind, 
Do you have to totally cave to dream and scheme? You and I don't have to do that. But most of the time, here's what happens. When the Spirit of God begins to, you know, just give a little bit of a twinge to our spirit, we, we go, but I want it. I, I know you're telling me, but, but I want what I want. And we live in a culture that says that if you have a desire, you must satisfy it. You owe it to yourself. Can I just say that that's an, a very immature way to understand life? We know that mature people are those that may have a desire, but no, they don't have to necessarily act on it. I may have a thought, but that doesn't necessarily mean I need to entertain it and keep milking it. But you and I, that actually a sign of maturity is to be able to delay gratification or say, that would not lead me down a good path. Is taking responsibility. Look up here, if you would, at the screen. James 1. Look at what it says here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So you can't say, you know, God, God's letting this happen to me. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what, friends? His own desire. This comes from inside. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. In other words, it doesn't have to keep going. You and I do not have to keep acting on that. We are responsible for how we steward our desires. But look at here, Ephesians 5, uh, verses 3 through 6. Look at this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints or believers, born-again people. For you may be sure of this, listen to this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, this means that you habitually keep doing this without turning away. That is an idolater. A covetous person is an idol worshiper, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. None. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath is coming on those who are disobedient. Therefore, don't be partners with them. Think it through. You're going to have to stand before God someday and give an account for the covetousness unless you do something about it. So the question is, what do we do? I already told you, the more I tried to get rid of covetousness, the more I found that I was a coveter. It even got worse. You ever seen those signs that says, don't even think about parking here? What's the very next thing you want to do? Right? So realize, wow, there's something I got to, how do I deal with this? So the Apostle Paul says, let me tell you what I learned. I used to be a coveter, but God took number 10 and he showed me something that led me to a place where now I am one of the happiest people on the planet, even though I'm writing this letter to you in Philippians 4 from prison. And I want to tell you how it happened. So if you're following along in the notes, let's look at how it happened. First, though outwardly faultless, number 10, he says, exposed his heart. Though outwardly faultless, number 10 exposes his heart. What do I mean by this? In Philippians 3, as he's telling his story, he looks back and he goes, look, I was born into the right home, I went to all the right God stuff when I was a kid, learned all the Bible verses, all that kind of stuff. I got to sit under one of the best rabbis when I was a kid. Then I became a Pharisee, which means I stood in front of a few witnesses, and I said that for the rest of my life, I will memorize the Old Testament, and I will seek in my own absolute eagerness and diligence to obey every command in the Bible with all my heart. 
That would make most of us look like we're just messing around, wouldn't it? So he says, in terms of the law, legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. I kept the law so to a T. But then notice what he says in Romans 7, um, if you will, here on the screen. But he says, I can hear some of you say, I'm going to jump down, it says that the law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. In other words, friends, when we blur the lines in our culture and we say, you know what, I don't think that's wrong anymore. A lot of people walk around and go, what's right, what's wrong? But when God makes them absolutely clear, then at that point, what you and I need to deal with is we go, wow, I suddenly see the line. I see where I am on which side of the line. So then it says, apart from the succinct surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetousness up to look like a virtue and it ruined, and ruined my life. I found that the very commandment that God gave that was intended to bring life actually brought death to me. Then he goes on. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. What he says is, when I finally, I was motoring along, I knew all these verses in my head, and one day God showed me what number 10 meant. That it wasn't all my outward performance that I thought was how he was measuring me. That it was the heart that he was looking at. And then he showed me that coveting has to do with the heart, the thoughts and desires that come out of my heart. And when I began to understand that, this commandment killed me. What's that mean? He says it absolutely brought me to the end of my self. It, it just shattered. It shattered me and all of my self-righteous confidence. And so he says, it came to look at my heart. I've told this story many times. Some of you have heard it. That when I was in college, we had a pond on the campus there in Elgin at Judson. And so when I was commuting, I drove onto the campus one day, early in the morning before my class, and I looked over and I saw the whole pond, two acres worth, was covered and just filled with soap suds. I went, whoa. So I walked over there and I just saw, Wow. And I eventually learned that the source of it was that some guys that had way too much time on their hands had taken this great big uh, dried piece of detergent and they had wedged it down into the fountainhead so that all night long while people were sleeping, the pond was filling up with soap suds. Now let's just say that just about that moment I walk over to the pond, I see a maintenance guy and he goes, hey, you got to help me out. You're in charge of getting rid of all the soap suds. And I go, well, I got class. No, you're in charge. So if I, okay, so now if I just all morning long just kept removing the soap suds, would I solve the problem with the pond? No. Why? Because the problem wasn't the suds. It was at the fountainhead. What Paul says is that number 10 helped me understand that I didn't have a sins problem. I had a sin problem that my whole life revolved around me. And that in my sin, which God really had to deal with, unless that got dealt with, I would keep doing all kinds of sins. The problem was at the fountainhead. He showed me it was out of my heart. And Jesus says in Mark 7 that these things, including covetousness, come out of the heart. Evil thoughts come out of the heart. And unless you go to the heart, unless you go to the fountainhead, you're never going to change it. So notice then, he says, the law... The law leads Paul to trust Christ Jesus. 
The law leads Paul to trust Christ Jesus. Now, if you want to read about Paul's story, you can look at Acts 9, 22, and 26 sometime on your own. But here's the big idea. One day, as Paul was a persecutor of the church in all his zeal trying to stamp out Christianity, he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. You see, Jesus isn't dead. He's alive, and he's also the Lord of heaven and earth. He meets him. He has this unbelievable experience on Damascus Road that humbles him. This bright light knocks him to the ground, and he hears Jesus say in an audible voice, Saul, Saul, which was his name before Paul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were those sticks that had sharp objects that would help the oxen walk the straight and narrow when they were rebellious. He says, why do you keep kicking against this? I'm showing you through number 10 that you need a savior. You don't just need a car wash. You don't just need more New Year's resolutions. You don't need to try harder. You need a new heart or you'll never be different. Trust my son. Trust that what Jesus came to do on the cross wasn't just to make us nice or good people, but there was no other way for God to do what he did except to die in our place through his son so that then he could give us a new heart, forgive us, and place his Holy Spirit in us who's just like Jesus. And that's what happened to Paul. He said, the law, as much as I hated it because it showed me and killed me, it led me to life. It led me to a savior, and I put my trust. I no longer trusted in myself, which I had been doing, even though I didn't realize it. And I put my trust in Christ. The third thing he says is, once I began to do that, now many years later, he says, in prison, as I write this letter in Philippians, if you have your Bibles, you can open it there. You look at verse 11. Look at what it says, if you have it there. And I'll put it also on the screen for the part that I want you to see. Does your translation say this? I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. You know what the cure is for coveting? It's contentment. And he says, I've learned to be content. Let's read verse 12 together there in that gray box. Would you join me? I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then there's this famous verse that goes next. Do you see it there, verse 13? I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, a lot of people use this to mean all things, even things God doesn't want them to do. What it means is I can do all things no matter what situation I'm facing now because Christ has given me a new fountainhead. He now lives in my life. He's real to me. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and everything I do, and it's become possible. And I've learned over the years the secret of being content, and here's what it is. It's Jesus in me and contentment that he brings when I realize how rich I am by having Jesus. A little girl was part of a Sunday school class that was asked to memorize Psalm 23 run. You, most of us have heard it before. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. So she came to Sunday school all excited because she'd been working on it all week, and she blurted out, she said, teacher, I've got it. And she said, the Lord is my shepherd, I've got all I want. The Lord is my shepherd. I've got all I want. Is he all you want? What would it look like if he became all you and I want? He would help us then look at every relationship and every material thing and everything in life differently. 
because he would be enough. Contentment means to be full. It means to be satisfied. It, needs to be, it means to be at rest, at peace, free. Now, I need to be honest with you. Paul says, I've learned the secret of this. Not because once I learned it, I never struggle with covetousness again. Friends, until there is, Jesus comes back and there is no devil, and, there, and we still are being fully redeemed, we're going to still struggle with this once in a while. This last week, as I'm working on this message, I saw covetousness in my heart, like, oh my goodness. And so for a couple days, I just tried to fast and think about Jesus and be in his word and just say, oh Lord, I hunger, I get away from this. I hunger more for you and who you are and what you want to be in my life than all this other stuff I get so distracted and deceived about. Oh Lord, show me how to be happy in Jesus. And oh man, I got to tell you, I started thinking about my blessings, started thinking about the people in my life. I started thinking about all the things he's given me that I just take for granted. I just get so used to him. And I began to sing to him. I began to pray to him. I began to whisper to him. Everything, for this I have Jesus. For this I have Jesus. For this I have you, Lord. And you and I, no matter what our circumstances are today, we can learn the secret of being content. And it is, it is the cure for covetousness. But it's a process. It's a matter of learning. But it all starts with whether or not we have a different fountainhead. Some of you here, you've never trusted Christ. You are still the same old person you've always been. And by God's grace, you need God's gift of being born again in Jesus Christ because he wants to give you grace, not judgment, that you might find that new fountainhead. So how do we bring this home? First, the cure for coveting to distrust myself, and to trust Christ for a new heart and outlook. Timothy Keller has said that sometimes people will say, well, I wish I could believe, but I just don't have the faith like that. You know, it's just beyond me. He says, some people may let you off the hook. I'm not gonna. He said, it's not that you can't have faith. It's that you refuse to stop having faith in yourself. You have faith. It's just that you believe in your own competence to lead your own life. You believe in your own ability to keep score. You believe that you know smarter than God. And he says, you got to give that up at some point. Or you are headed for a judgment day where Jesus will not be standing with you like he could be. And so we need to distrust ourselves and say, you know one of the reasons I keep getting involved in all this stuff is because I keep thinking, one more toy. I can, I can figure it out this time. He goes, man, lay it down. Trust Christ and the new heart he can give. It's a gift, friends. You and I cannot earn it. It's a gift. And the second thing is to actively practice appreciating life with Christ. To actively practice appreciating life with Christ. Notice I said actively. You may want to circle that. If you noticed that you almost have to get a little militant when you're driving through this world, like some of you are going to see a billboard. Some of you are going to see an advertisement. You know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to push back. You're going to have to say, I bet I could live the rest of my life without that. But I have Jesus. Jesus, show me how to look at that and how to look at my life differently. Come on. And so you and I can actively practice this. And tonight we're going to write out, get a sheet for writing out 100 things this week. We're going to actually hear a message tonight about how Jesus fulfills all 10 commandments. And so that if we put our trust in him, God accepts his record on behalf of ours. And we can know the assurance of having Jesus in our life. 
And I hope you'll come back to that. But if you're not able to, you can still write a hundred things this week because it may change. Some of us, when we hear a message like this, we go, I've got, to, I've got to push those covetous thoughts out of my mind. If you try and do that, it will only get driven in deeper. What you need instead is a Savior who can help you replace those thoughts with better thoughts, those desires with better desires. And that's why Jesus came. And that's what he wants to do in your life. The cure for coveting is contentment in Christ. And you can learn it. You can know it. So we wanted to end the service by singing. To move our attention away from all the things that we think will make us happy. And remember that Jesus Christ is the only one that can make us really happy. He's the only one. So let's worship him now. And just as Jesus, instead of grasping his prerogative to be God, loosened it, laid aside his glory, came down to earth and opened his hands that he have something to give to us. And when he works in our lives, we go from grasping, clutching people to open-handed, open-hearted, open-armed people. Praise his name. He is the cure for coveting. And you can know him. And he can help us. So I want to pray for you as you go. And know there's always someone down front who would be glad to pray with you after the service. Let me just pray for you because I know it's a battle, isn't it, friends? It's an ongoing battle. Until heaven, we're going to have to actively let Jesus be the Lord. God, I want to pray for every person in this room that they know exactly where they stand with you, that if they've never trusted you yet, they're still trusting in themselves, that they'd give it up today or very soon and put their trust in you so that you can come in Give them a new fountainhead, a new heart, a new outlook. And for those of us that have already done that, help us, God, to let you renew our minds so that we're not conformed to this world, but that your word will teach us how to look at things and people from your perspective. We'll begin to open our hands instead of just grasp and clutch. For Jesus' sake, we pray this. And everyone agreed and said, amen. God bless you.